Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Uh, no, so I'm the youth pastor. My name's Nick Robinson, and uh, we just took a trip to Romania with the seniors, the graduated seniors, and we went to work at a summer camp there with one of our mission partners. His name is Julian. Uh, this is the second year in a row that we've gone, and man, it was a spectacular experience. Um, I really, really love getting to take these kids and let them work in this camp. I mean, it's pretty common for teenagers, especially college kids, to work for a summer camp during the summer. But to go to Romania and work with these kids that half of them don't speak our language and be partnered with counselors, half of which don't speak our language very well, it really puts, um, puts a challenge in front of them, it gives them something to really struggle to accomplish. And they did. Um, you know, I remember Carly, she was one of our seniors that went, she was saying how the first couple days she kind of hated it, uh, really, really didn't like it because she felt like her counselor didn't, the one that she was working with didn't really like her and wasn't really talking to her. Um, but then after the ice kind of broke and a couple days went by, she really started to love it because it, it took a minute. It wasn't easy. It wasn't simple. She really had to kind of work to build that relationship and make it into something that they could use to change the hearts and minds of young people. And that's inevitably what she got to do and what we all got to do on this trip. Um, we work at this summer camp. We get to, we get the kids, the, the counselors we take, they get to walk the, the young kids through devotionals and they have to get it translated. So they have to change the way that they talk and how long they speak before they take a break. And, um, then we go play games with them. And it's amazing how you can play games with people that don't speak your language. It's, it's, it's amazing the ways, because really that was one of the main challenges that I, I told them like, look, you're going to have to figure out a way to show these kids that God loves them without being able to say it because they're not going to understand you. And these guys met that challenge. We changed a lot of hearts and minds for, for Christ. We made his name known in a place where, surprising to us, it was already known. This, is, this was one of the big revelations I think a lot of our, our teenagers came to was, wow, God really is everywhere. I mean, he's sure he's in Flower Mound and we know where the churches are and we know who, who knows who Jesus is here. But all the way across the ocean in this other country that doesn't speak our language, even they knew Jesus. And it's one thing to say that. I think if we can all, if I raised, if I asked you guys to raise your hand and say, do you guys know that Jesus' name is preached throughout the world? You'd probably say yes. But to really go and see it, to experience it. That was another theme of our trip, I think, is it's one thing to know the history of something or know the truth about something, but then to walk into it and really experience it is a whole new thing. And it was, a, it was just a great, great experience for us and the kids. And then after we left, so, you know, while we're there, one of the things, one of my goals is to make sure that we inject just a little bit of culture and perspective into the minds of these kids. So yeah, they're going to work at this camp, but also we're going to go see stuff because we're in Europe. We're in Romania. We need to see things. We need to see things that are more than 200 years old. And so we got to go into the city of Targoviste, where the fortress of Targoviste is. Uh, some people who, this is where the kings of Romania lived for hundreds of years. Uh, Vlad Dracul, if you add an A to it, the name is a little bit more well known. Uh, his son, Vlad Tepes, whose last name is, means the Impaler. These are kings that lived in this castle. 
Um, and these are big, important kings for Romania. This is at the time when the Ottoman Empire was invading and trying to take everything they could. And it was these kings who did everything they could, particularly Vlad the Impaler. It's not just a cool nickname. He got that nickname because he did everything he could, including impaling a lot of people, to protect the nation of Romania. At that time, it was just Transylvania from the Ottoman invasion. And he's a well-known, revered king. There are statues of him everywhere, all throughout the country, because he devoted everything he could to make sure that kingdom stayed safe, to make sure his people continued to live as they wanted to. And it was amazing to walk in the footsteps of that king and to see the tower that he built and to be able to touch these old stones and walk through this old building. It's just, it was, it was magical. It really was. It was beautiful. Um, and then we, we saw this old monastery, same thing, just these beautiful buildings that were built so long ago. Um, and we got to be led around by this nun who lived there that kind of showed us all the things about it and the connection that it has with the royal family. It was just it was a beautiful experience. And I really think that we were able to kind of inject some culture into these kids uh, who are about to go off to college. And now they have the experience of seeing and walking and, and, and experiencing something completely new. And then we go and we went to London for about a day and a half. So after we do this trip where we really give everything we have to these kids, we take about 48 hours and just decompress and debrief. And since we're in Europe, London might as well be the place that we do that. So we go and we stayed on the cheap and we didn't really get to do a lot of the expensive tours. We really didn't get to do a lot of the cool things. We kind of did the window shopping version of London, uh, which in my opinion is actually kind of cool because... You don't find yourself following tour guides around and looking at all the beautiful things. You actually have to kind of create experiences for yourself. And so we end up find, like walking down to the bank of the River Thames and sorting through old rocks and finding a suspicious amount of bones. I'm not going to lie to you. It was very confusing. There were some really old bones, a lot of them, and I have a lot of questions. Why are there so many bones you don't have to figure it out right now. But if you could, if all of you could collectively get together and figure out this puzzle for me, I'd really appreciate it because it's still rattling around in my brain. Um, and we get to go and just walk the streets and have different experiences because we're not waiting in line for the next tour. Um, I think, Nathan, were you one of the ones that bought the fake painting? Yeah. So they stood and watched this painter who was painting scenes of London and they bought one. And, and you know, it turned out it was just a photo that he made look like a painting. Uh, and then when they went back to talk to him about it, he was gone. So, you know, you don't get to experience those things. If you're walking through Westminster Abbey, uh, you get to do new things. And it's, I'm sure it's beautiful. It'll probably hang in our house at some point. Um, but then, you know, we get to, we, we find ourselves in the Shakespeare's Globe Theater. I'm standing there in the gift shop waiting for whatever show is about to end so the doors will open and I can peek my head in there. And, you know, I'm, I'm an English major. I love Shakespeare. So that was a really special moment for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this place where, and I know it's been burned down and rebuilt and burned down and rebuilt. Everything in London has. But, you know, I got to walk in there and kind of feel this weird sense of, man, a lot's happened here. A lot has happened here. A lot of great plays and, and, and the, the language of English has changed because of what happened here. A lot of us don't realize the impact that those plays and those words and those performances had on the future of even the way we speak now and the idioms and the phrases that we have are shaped by what happened in that room. And just begin to think about things like the to be or not to be, but soft what light through yonder window breaks, my horse, a horse, a kingdom for a horse, all these beautiful phrases and plays that happened there. And it moved me. It was interesting. It was meaningful to me. And then, you know, as we came home, I began to think to myself, kind of, what did all this stuff really mean? 
We saw all these cool things. We walked in all these cool buildings. We, we, saw, uh, we saw cannonballs lodged in the walls of old chapels where the Ottomans shot cannonballs and they stuck and they're still there hundreds of years later. We walked in um, and prayed in old chapels and we saw all these great things. But what did it really mean? Um, and there was this word that kept coming in my mind, you know, because I, I also thought about these are beautiful things, but, you know, there's also stuff from Scripture like Solomon's temple, Solomon's palace, the gardens that he built, all of these things that are gone. Nobody can say they've seen them. Nobody is alive that can remember what they looked like. Nobody is alive that has ever known anybody that's known what they looked like. But yet there were these beautiful monuments that people came to and felt meaning and had experiences in that changed them, but they're gone now. And, you know, one day the, the Tower of London will be gone. One day, Westminster Abbey will be nothing but dust. One day, all of these things will pass away. One day, all of the things that we've built ourselves, all of these, this particular building, all of the things that we've made that make us feel secure and that we hold meaning to, all of them will one day perish and be gone. And the word that just kept coming to my mind was from Solomon himself, and it's the word vanity. Solomon described it this way, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. All of these beautiful things and, and amazing buildings, what was there before them? Nobody remembers. William the Conqueror built the, the Tower of London in 1098, but what was there before that? And what was there before that? Nobody knows, nobody remembers, and it'll be the same for all the monuments we hold dear today. They'll be gone. They are all destined to be dust. So if that's all true, if all these things that we build up and all these things that we hold such great meaning to, if they're all destined to be dust, what, what is there exactly that we can cling to? What can we hold on to and ascribe meaning to that, that won't fade away? Today we're going to look at Proverbs 3. This is the last of our Proverbs series. And you might think that we'd be at the very end of Proverbs, but we're not. We're going to move back into Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 8. And while normally it might be normal to just kind of listen and, and experience what I'm saying, I think today would be a good day to open your scripture, whether it's digital or you actually have one of those weird things that has paper and stuff in it. Um, you could open that and you won't, you're going to want to follow along because I'm going to read it and then I'm going to pick through it piece by piece and it might help for you to just kind of see where we're at and what we're talking about. We're trying to answer the question, what can we cling to? What has real meaning? And I'm hoping that through the reading of these verses and as we talk about them and look at the core of them, we'll find the answer to our question. So I'm going to start by reading this and then we'll, we'll pick it apart. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So let's dive into this and see if we can figure out what it is we can cling to. In this passage, you're going to see a command and reward pattern. He will tell you to do something or to not do something. And if you do or do not do that thing, you will receive this reward. That's the basic pattern of this passage. And there's four basic things that Solomon is is instructing us to do and to follow. Four basic things. So we're going to look at these. The first one, again, follow along because I'm going to paraphrase. The first one is don't forget my teaching. Solomon was a teacher. Solomon was wise. He taught and he taught and he taught. He wrote books, even books that we don't have. And he knows and everyone else was supposed to know that the source of that wisdom was from God. So when Solomon says, do not forget my teaching, we can read into that and say, okay, he's telling us not just him, but to not forget what we've been taught by our God. And not even just by our God, but by those we trust. Our mentors, our teachers, the people that we've allowed to instruct us. Do not forget teaching, he says. And he goes beyond to just say, don't forget it. He's, saying, he's not saying, don't memorize what you've been taught. That's helpful and that's important, but there needs to be something beyond that. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There's a difference between knowing and understanding. And what he's getting at here when he says, let your heart keep my commandments. When he says, write them on the tablet of your heart, bind them around your neck. He's referring to a deeper sense of understanding than just saying, I know what that is, or I've heard that before, or I've memorized this. He wants us to let it inhabit us, to let it move into our hearts and change the way we think and act. This is, this is a deeper sense of wisdom and understanding than just looking at something, reading it, and moving on. He wants us to dwell on these teachings, to really allow them to be absorbed into what we hold dear and to move and change and shape us. It's the difference between saying, let your mind keep my commandments and let your heart keep my commandments. Solomon is not one that uses words lightly. He's very specific. And in this case, he's trying to make sure we understand that what we are taught, we need to let it move in and not just stay out on the surface. And if you do this, we have the command, here's the reward. If you do this, he says, you'll live longer and find peace. All throughout Scripture, we see the promise of longer life go. It's used a lot. It's used a lot. And when I read it, I I tend to ask myself a couple questions. It's, is he saying when you'll live longer? Because he says things like length of days, prolonged life, multiplied years. Is this a promise of supernaturally blessed physical life? Is he saying if I obey these things that I'll get to live past the 120 or maybe I'll get to 125 or whatever it is? Is he saying that I'll get a supernaturally blessed life? Or is he saying, he's just sort of hinting at the fact that, yes, you'll all get to live forever if you follow my commands, if you listen to what I have to say and you trust me. You'll, yes, you'll live forever in eternity. We all get that. Or is he saying, if you live the way I've asked you to live and you live the way that I've sort of laid out for you, you'll find yourself living longer. That's just a fact is what I... And if I really, if I'm looking at those three questions, I tend to lean towards that last one. I think we can, you, got, you can interpret it the way you want. The way I see it is he's saying to us, if you live according to the way that I've laid out for you, you're going to find yourself living longer. That's just how it's going to work. And I think the, the great blessing here is not that we get some extra long life. That's, that's cool. But I think more, the, more so what he's saying, because the fear of death, I think, is not 
that we're not sure what's going to happen next. It's that we don't want to leave the people that we're with. We don't want to leave the ones that we've loved and the loved ones that we care for. And so I think the blessing that he's offering here is not that you get to live this super long life, but rather he's saying, if you follow the way that I've called you to live, you'll get to spend more time with the people you love. That's the way I interpret this promise, and that's a really great promise. Of course, in the light of situations like El Paso and Dayton, we have to remember that in a broken world, there's exceptions to everything. The evil that permeates this broken world tends to break these promises sometimes. You know, no matter how well we live and and follow the commandments of our Lord, something stupid can happen. And that's just the consequence of living in a broken world. It doesn't mean that God's word is false. It doesn't mean that he's a liar. It just means that he's trying to make all things new, and we need to figure out how we can be of service. He offers long life, but he also says, and you'll live in peace. And I can get into that word peace, the word shalom. I can, do, I can do a whole series on that word. It's a beautiful, rich, robust word. But I just want to make sure we understand that when he says this, he doesn't just mean that you'll live without violence. He means that you'll be able to live a life in harmony and wholeness. That you'll be able to be in rhythm with the world around you. So that's the first thing Solomon's telling us here. Number two, he says, don't stop being kind and dependable. Don't stop being kind and dependable. That word steadfast love is one word. It's hesed, and it doesn't just mean loving for a long time. What it means is it's more akin to the word kindness or charity, going above and beyond what is required and expected of you. That's the heart of what that word is really means. So what he's saying is continue to be kind above what's expected. And that word continue is key because when he says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, what he's saying is you should already be doing this because if you're following in the ways that I've laid out for you, if you've allowed the word and what you've been taught to absorb your heart, you will find yourself living above and beyond kindness to the world around you. It's a, it's a mark of, of those who are committed disciples that we are seen as above and beyond kind and above and beyond dependable. That's what, what he's asking of us here. And the reward for this is pretty cool. He says, you will find success with both God and man. This is obvious, right? People who are above and beyond kind and above and beyond dependable, those are the ones that you want working with you and for you. They're the kind of people you want to work for. They're the kind of people that you trust. They're the kind of people you want to be friends with. They're the kind of people you want to marry. Those people, the ones that live like this, will be found most useful to both God and man. That's what Solomon is laying out for us here. Psalm 8510, David says it this way, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. David was a very vivid writer. Number three. He says, trust in God's wisdom and understanding rather than your own. This is a key one. He's, he's sort of opened the gates a little bit with let what I've taught you invade your heart. Let it change you. Continue to be kind and dependable. And as you do that, remember this. Trust in God's wisdom and understanding rather than your own. That word trust is obviously pretty key. Let's look at what it really means in this particular context. J.I. Packer, a theologian, he writes it this way. Saying, what is trust? It is a childlike, unwavering confidence 
in our Father's well-proved wisdom, faithfulness, and love. He is truth itself. Therefore, he wants us to take him at his word and to prove his word to the very limit of his power. I love that. A childlike, unwavering confidence in our Father's well-proved wisdom. Has God not proven to us over and over again that his faithfulness can be trusted? Has God not proven to us over and over again and shown us time and time again that not only can we take him at his word, but the heart of that word is a deep, unwavering love for us. When Solomon says here to trust in God's wisdom, he's asking us for this kind of wholehearted, unwavering confidence kind of trust. We cannot give that trust in pieces and parcels. We cannot compartmentalize our life and say, I trust him over here, but over here, I kind of need to do my own thing. Look, I'm a, I'm a business person. I run a business. I, I, can't, I can't always do it the way God would do it. I, there are business things that I have to do that aren't necessarily in line with who God tells me to be, and that's okay because I got to run my business. I got I to support my family. You know, I trust God, but you know what? I've got to get a good grade on this test. I have to continue to keep my good grades up. I can't, I forgot to study. I didn't have time. So I've got to look at this person's paper. It's not a big deal. God will forgive me. I trust God, but, you know, he's going to forgive me no matter what I do, right? It's just, it's just sex. It's, it's just a little lie. It's just a 30 second video. It's just, it's just, he wants all, wants all of our heart, a childlike unwavering confidence that he will guide us to the good things in life. That he will guide us to much straighter and better paths than our feeble little minds can carry us to. That as the song says, when our heart and flesh may fail, he continues to be steadfast and faithful. We cannot hold trust in ourselves. We must give that away in a childlike, unwavering kind of way. And if we do that, command reward, if we do that, he will make straight our paths, is what it says. Now, a straight path is not necessarily an easy path. God never promises us an easy life. He never promises us simplicity or, or, or comfort. Search the scriptures. I beg you, pour through them. You're not going to find it. He never promises us wealth and riches. He promises us a straight path that he will walk with us. One of my favorite concepts that comes out of Scripture is that God is not a God that constantly removes us from our pain, removes us from our trouble, but rather sits with us and anchors us in it and sticks through the storm, through the pain, through the problem, and promises that he will never leave us. Because really the great fear and sadness in life is when we go through pain alone when we go through struggle and we feel like nobody around us gets us and nobody around is there for us, God says, you never have to feel that way when you're with me. I'm with you always. And he will make our paths straight and he will walk them with us. And if we truly trust and allow him to guide our life, he will lead us away from those obstacles and those things that not necessarily the ones that cause us pain, because sometimes we grow through pain, but he'll lead us away from those things that might draw us away from him, those obstacles, those temptations that we don't need. You know, he says in the, in the, in the Lord's prayer, he says, deliver us from evil. He will do that if we let him. He will make straight our paths. And the last one from this passage, 
don't act like you already know everything because you don't. Seneca, a Roman philosopher, says it this way. I love this. It's pretty funny. I suppose that many might have attained wisdom had they not thought they already attained it. Isaiah says it this way. Isaiah 5, 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and who see themselves as understanding. Even Solomon, the wisest of all people, considered what he knew when you stacked it up against that which God knows and his wisdom to be vanity, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. We don't know nearly what we think we do. We have not experienced nearly what we think we have. No matter how full of knowledge we believe we are or others tell us that we are, if we are holding God's teaching in our heart, continuing in above and beyond kindness and dependability, and trusting in God's wisdom above our own, how can we call ourselves wise? We're not. We have to acknowledge our lack of wisdom and our lack of foresight in order to truly be in this relationship we want. We cannot come into it saying, all right, God, I've already got us this far. You can get us the rest of the way. You need to come in and say, God, I got nothing. You got to bring everything. If we do this, command reward, you'll find healing to your brokenness and you'll find peace. Pour yourself into the wisdom found in the pages of Scripture and through prayer and relationship with Christ. And when we look at Scripture, we cannot just look at little verses here and there and hope to find inspiration. We need to look at Scripture in its entirety, to look at the big picture story. Tim Keller says it this way. He asks us this question. Are you seeking to understand the Bible's main themes and big picture story rather than merely seeking inspiration from individual Bible verses? This concept makes me think of the story. I have a friend... Uh, who went to Japan, and uh, he had a great time. He was there for about a week and a half, and uh, he had one big complaint, and it was that his hotel room was tiny. Uh, he walked in the room, and the room, the one cool thing he said, at the back of the room, there was this wood wall with the paper windows, and it was pretty cool, um, but the rest of the room was about the size of the stage. He had a very small couch. He had a very small bathroom, and that was about it. And so he spent the whole week and a half, about 10 days, sleeping on this tiny little couch in a fetal position. Um, you know, and the good thing is he didn't spend a lot of time there. He traveled around. He saw the city. It was cool. Um, and then the last day, the last day he's there, he slept in a little bit later. And as he woke up from his little fetal position on the couch, the, the, the cleaning person had come in. Uh, and that woman walked straight to the back, went to that wood wall, and opened it to reveal a whole big room with a king-size bed, a table, and a little kitchen with a basket of fruit that was rotting because it's been there for a week and a half. If you're content to sleep in the sitting room of Scripture, just picking inspirational verses here and there, you're going to miss the grandeur, beauty, and wisdom of the main themes and big-picture narrative of the Bible. There's so much more to Scripture than Joshua 1.9, Jeremiah 29.11, John 3.16. There's, there's so much more to this story. We need to really dive in and investigate and open the walls and look at every little nook and cranny and corner that we can find to really see the truth and the big picture story of who God is and how much he loves us. The most memorable thing for me from when we went to, on our trip to Romania and London um, 
Again, I told you we did the sites, the, the window shopping version of London, and so we didn't really get to spend money on tours and do all these special things. But there's a little trick. Uh, if you go to, like, Westminster Abbey or where we went, St. Paul's Cathedral, it costs about $30 to get in and look around, and that's cool. But if you go during a service time, it's free. It costs nothing. You can just walk right in. So we went to St. Paul's Cathedral, this beautiful 700-year-old building that used to be the tallest building in London. You could see it for miles around. It was the place where Winston Churchill's funeral was held. It was the place where Princess Diana and Charles were married. It was this, it's this beautiful historical building, and it's beautiful. It's filled with great paintings and frescoes and sculpture all over the place. And we got to go in for free. And, ex- and this is the crazy thing about it. For me, I think this is what should cost money because we went into that building not just to see it and look at it. We went into that building to experience its true purpose. That building was built to bring fellow believers in to worship together. So we got to not only see it, but experience it for its intended purpose. So we walked in, we saw some things, then we went and sat down. And we began to listen to the prayers that the priest was reading off. And listen to the liturgy and experience it together with a couple hundred other people that were there. And then the priest called for communion. And I realized that the St. Paul's Cathedral is not a Catholic church, but an Anglican church, which if you don't know your denominational stuff, Anglicans allow anybody to take communion. You don't have to be Anglican. You don't have to be anything. You can just come and take it. They just ask that you be a believer. So I got excited. And I've got to be honest, and I feel kind of bad about this. This is the first time in a long time that I was excited to take communion. And so I jumped up and got in line, and I was ready, and I was watching And I was looking around and I was realizing I am one in a line of thousands that have for seven centuries come to this building and this place to take the Lord's Supper together with other believers. I was part of this giant, enormous story. And I looked at the walls and I thought about the many people and faces that have have sat there and stood there and walked there. And as I took the bread and the cup, that, that meal felt more substantial to me than anything I'd taken in the last week. And it sat with me. And as I sat down and continued to pray, it just began, my tears began to flow and I was just, I was connected to God in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. So when I ask this question, what can we cling to? What can we hold on to? I think what Proverbs is pointing us to here is that all these things that are destined to us, you can't hold on to those. But the moments where we connect with our Savior, the moments where we truly allow ourselves to trust Him, the moments where we pour into Scripture and we find this, some new angle, some new thing about God that we haven't seen before, those moments when we're just in our car and we're praying and we're hearing um, God's voice and we're feeling that presence, those are moments that are not destined for dust. Those are moments that last in eternity. And when we take those moments and lay them up in our hearts like you do, build a cathedral, cathedrals built with rocks and stone, but when we take those moments and build them up into our hearts, we build our own temple filled with our own versions of these beautiful sculptures and paintings that we've experienced through life. 
These godly moments that we collect as we walk through life, trusting in him, living in an unwavering confidence that he is our God, following his commandments, allowing them to be absorbed into our hearts and not just remembering them, but living them. When we continue to be overly kind and dependable, when we follow the way that God has laid out for us, we continue to lay up stones in the heart of our own temple and we build a beautiful, amazing cathedral that cannot be torn down. No fire can destroy, no earthquake can shatter. We build this eternal temple built for the purpose of making us more like him. So that we might join together with the body of Christ and move forward in a way that draws people into him. This is what we can cling to. These are moments that we can depend on and rely on to strengthen us, to feed us. It's a pretty simple answer. What can we cling to? We can cling to him. We can cling to our relationship with him. We can cling to what he's taught us. And those things are not destined for dust. They are meant to live forever. As we are. Because everything else is vanity. A chasing after the wind. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your steadfast love. God, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for everything that you do for us on a daily basis, God, that you have not only told us how to live, how to to walk on this earth and trust you, but you've shown us in your son, Jesus, you've shown us this unwavering confidence and what it leads to. And God, I pray that you would embolden our hearts and inhabit our souls in such a way that we cannot help but share your love with the world around us in such a way that we cannot help but reveal the glory of your kingdom to those around us. God, continue to give us these moments that we need, these moments of connection that continue to build up the cathedral of our hearts that we might live in such a way that inspires love and mercy and grace and compassion. God, take this church and move us in the direction that you want us. Make straight our paths. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We ask all this in your mighty name.